driving the Mars rover from home, and planning the next decade of discovery. You're listening to Are We There Yet? radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. For those of us now working from home, we know there are a few challenges. Your mic doesn't work on a Zoom meeting, cat walks across your keyboard, your VPN's busted. Well, imagine your job entails driving a car-sized rover some 100 million miles away on the surface of Mars, all from home. That's exactly what the Curiosity rover team is doing now, with great success. NASA's Alicia Alba leads the Mars rover driving team and joins us to talk about the challenges of remote working and the successes her team has accomplished. Then, each year, scientists get together and plan for the next 10 years of discovery. The Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey is underway. So, what's on the horizon? On this week's installment of I'd Like to Know, our expert scientists weigh in on what's to come in the efforts of planetary discovery. That's just ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. NASA has set a date for the launch of SpaceX's capsule designed to fly humans from Kennedy Space Center, carrying two NASA astronauts. The launch aims to end a nearly decade-long gap of human-crewed launches from the U.S. since the end of the space shuttle program. On May 27th, NASA and SpaceX say they will launch veteran astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley from Kennedy Space Center to the International Space Station. It's the first human test mission for NASA's commercial crew program, a $6 billion partnership with private companies SpaceX and Boeing to ferry astronauts to the ISS. SpaceX's Falcon 9 successfully launched an uncrewed capsule to the space station last year. Since the end of the shuttle program, NASA has relied on the Russian space agency for rides to the station. An uncrewed test mission of Boeing's astronaut capsule failed back in December. The company says it will try one more uncrewed mission before attempting to launch astronauts. Stay up to date with the latest space news stories by visiting wmfe.org space, or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. With most of NASA teleworking to prevent the spread of coronavirus, missions exploring our solar system continue. NASA's Curiosity rover is no exception. The team members responsible for driving and operating the rover are all now working from home. I caught up with the leader of that team, Alicia Alba, about the transition to remote roving. But first, she brought us up to speed on how her team drove the rover before they were all sent home. Typically, we are in one really large room with um, computers all around the edges of it and a big table in the middle. And so we have something like 15 people in there to 20, depending on the day and what's happening. And so if you can imagine, it's big enough that it's like 15 feet, 20 feet across. So the one side kind of has to say, hey, I need your attention across the way. And also we have the science participation has always been sort of outside the room for quite a long time. We used to be all in this room. So they're on the phone. So we have a, a, a major teleconferencing, screen sharing kind of situation going on. And then in one corner, you have folks talking amongst themselves, pointing at screens. And in another corner, you have folks talking amongst them, seeing the screens or people walking, you know, from one area to the other to like chat and point and, and, uh, and do updates and discuss the plan, as we call it. And some of these folks are having side conversations, even not just in the room, but with some of the science folks outside of the room. So they Mm -hmm. would be having, there's still 
chat lines that we have, our own sort of chat that folks are in. So you're typing to each other, you're talking to each other, and you're also talking in the room, inside and outside of the room. So there, there's a, a lot of people that work on driving this rover, right? I mean, when, when you when you think mm-hmm. of, when, you know, a layman thinks about it, you think it's just a person in a room with a video game controller, but that that's not the case, right? How, 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 what goes into deciding where... Uh, where curiosity goes. Well, ultimately, it's the science groups. So there's upwards of 500 scientists on the uh, on the on the mission, and some subset of those are are deemed working for what is the path we should take, and those paths are de- decided by what scientific investigations they want to perform. So do we want to look at more sand? What kind of different rock formations are they interested in? Where are those and how do we get there? So there's some work ahead of time with the engineers and with the scientists to say, this is where we want to get to. How do we get there safely? And then on any given day, you get better images. So the images we use to drive long distances or to plan are from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And so we look at those and they're really good images. They can even pick out the rover tracks from space, but we're a dot. And then we get ones we took yesterday and we get to see it in detail. It's like, wow, I get to see where I am. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, then the scientists say, oh, over there is the place we really want to put this instrument down or take this, you know, go look at this more closely. So every day there's a reiteration of that with the folks in the room, with the folks out of the room, all this collaboration kind of mm-hmm. happening to say that's where we want to go. And that's our priority today. Mm-hmm. We're putting the arm on this dot, this crevice, this, this thing on a rock is the, the priority today. They're very calculated moves, right? You're you're not just yes. zooming the rover to where it needs to go. It's they're very very step by step kind of plotted points, and they right? actually can be pretty precise. They get within you know centimeters of where they're aiming usually, and there's a lot of autonomy within the rover because the other thing we don't do, which you might think, is we don't get to watch it. We tell it what to do. It drives. It puts its arm down. It does it, and then we get a, a window where we send the data up and say, "How did it go?" Oh, it's good. We got there. <laughs> so, so there's already these like these these baked in challenges, right? With with the the rover, it's some millions and millions of miles away. There's a communication delay. You're not seeing things in real time. And now added to this whole suite of challenges in, in maneuvering this rover, now you're all working remotely, right? How, how has that changed the the process? Well, it's certainly uh, been challenging. It's uh suddenly all these these conversations that used to be sort of natural and you'd call someone over to look at something, you now have to purposely kind of request them come into a teleconference so that you can chat with them or, you know, show your screen to them, which used to just point or, or that kind of scenario. And so some of our roles have one role is really coordinating between science and, and this, like the rover planners who are doing the actual drive planning. And she has like five or six 10 different chat sessions going with different scientists and different people. And our folks, which used to have only like listening in the room, now have a teleconference in each ear so that they can talk amongst themselves and talk with what used to be the rest of the room. So there's a a fair amount of communication sort of add-on 
that you now mean you have to be more purposeful in your in your communication style instead of more natural in the way you were doing it before. And and how do you juggle all of those? you know, multiple channels of audio coming through. It would drive me crazy, I'm sure. I don't know. You're, you're in radio. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, <laughs> there's an amount of it, it. The word that one of the rubber planters said, he was dubious that this would work. And it you get into a rhythm to where you're like, you're doing one thing. And the it's not like one is on all the time and everyone's talking all at the same time. You start managing it like, orchestrating it a bit more or saying, hold on, I'm listening to the other line. And then we get in, you know, and address the questions. And so there's, there's a sort of an orchestration and a dance that you start getting into. That's, you start getting a new normal with this, which we're, we've seen over the last weeks to, to get into groove and knowing where, what windows are open on mm-hmm. your screens to know where to look for the chats and where to look for different things. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get used to it, believe it or not. We've had on, on the program in the past um, some folks from JPL that were talking about some of the visualization tools that you all use to, to plan these things out. You use some, some really neat mm-hmm. VR stuff, some um, really cool um, kind of augmented reality tools. Um, those aren't available now when, when you're working from home, I would assume. How are you able to kind of plot these out um, without using, you know, these enhanced graphics and, and visuals that you've relied on before? So we, we've had to kind of go back to the, um, the original way of doing this, which are called anaglyphs, which are the red-blue, like what you might have gotten in a 3D movie. So we okay. still can see 3D. It's just not as crisp, and it takes a bit longer to pick through and zoom in and do the same kind of checks that we do uh, on any given day. So it just takes longer. And, and I've got to ask this question because this is something that I've uh, recently run into working from home is that um, animals can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, is, is there any concern that uh, someone's cat may walk across their keyboard and uh, cause the rover to <laughs> roll off a cliff or something? Uh, no, because one, there's a lot of checks and balances in the way we build our, our commanding. So our commanding gets simulated, delivered, um, checked uh, before it goes up many, many times. So even if a cat did walk across a keyboard, um, that would likely not pass simulation. And the commands that we would have, or we would find whether there was something wrong, would be verified before we send it. So there's no chance that that would probably get to the rover. Um, we joke about it amongst ourselves because a lot of folks have various different animals, birds. I personally have a rabbit. We have um, different animals all around uh, in there. And so, of course, we've joked about that. There's that, no way. I mean, because it, it's no different than a user messing up when they type, right? And we can't have that either. Well, that that definitely puts my mind at ease. So <laughs> I'm glad because my cat has snuck into a newscast story or something I filed. So <laughs> um, what kind of planning went into this? Is, is this something that you guys had to just figure out on the fly or had this always kind of been a part of uh, mission planning that, that you would have to be remote? It was never part of our planning until um, like early March when I heard, I think on NPR, like you should be planning to for a pandemic. And we're like, what does that mean? So we started having conversations and by the 12th of March is when we did a, uh, a remote test. All of JPL was was trying a teleworking experience if, if we could. And that's when 
we pulled together, we had started testing sort of can people remotely log in and such before that. But on the 12th, we did an actual trial of could we build commands in that way? And that proved that the concept worked. And so when we were told on the 16th of March, just a few days later, don't come in on the 17th, we already had a leg up on how we would handle doing mm-hmm. commanding. So by and- the 20th, which was our next commanding session, we didn't have commanding on that Wednesday, Thursday. On the 20th, we did it. And walk me through that. What, what were you able to accomplish remotely? Um, what, was, what was your first, uh, first command? It was pretty exciting. Our very first commanding session was drilling a hole called Edinburgh on Mars. So we, you don't typically do that. It's not the first thing. You can't drill a hole like immediately. So we had been planning our, our salt path, had actually had been doing the precursors for that. That's just happened to be the day we would have been drilling a hole had we still been at JPL. That would have been that day. And it just so happened to be the day we went remote. And we did it on that day. So that was kind of miraculous, fun, however you want to call it. Exciting. It was very exciting. What, what's the prospect of the future? I mean, is, this, is, is it working out? Did you, did you find any challenges or, or snags in the process um, during the Edinburgh? Of course. Um, for one, the, uh, the remote connectivity varies for everyone, right? Because it's everybody's home. So we certainly have had dropouts that we've had to, you know, suddenly in the middle of our planning, we usually don't have dropouts. So we've had to adjust to that. You know, somebody lost power at their home. So they were suddenly on their battery backup of their, on their laptop and using a hotspot on their cell phone, various different, different solutions to connectivity issues, either at home or at JPL or through your local neighborhood, that kind of scenarios. It's kind of like the NASA way, right? You know, I'm reminded of it's the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. You know, Mm -hmm. if there is a challenge, um, you know, the smart folks at NASA are are able to figure it out, right? Yes. And sometimes from very far away, like with Apollo, it was the ground crew and the locals up in the orbit in in the capsule. So, yeah, if there's a challenge, they tend to find a way to around it. It may not be the perfect solution, as we may not be able to do 100% of what we would have done before, but we are still exploring. We are still able to get science out of this vehicle, and that is certainly something we wouldn't have expected even in January. Thinking a little more broadly, like even outside of commanding a spacecraft that is on another planet, um, a lot of other folks are now working remotely. And um, there are other managers like you that are working remotely. I mean, what kind of things have you learned through this process um, that you could give other leaders or managers tips and tricks uh, moving forward as, as we're kind of living in this remote world? Well, one thing I know is that every every individual's situation is is it varies and we can't assume that our team is all uniformly as productive or their stress levels are not all the same, like raising children or dealing with your cat in your face. Um, Any of these situations, uh, there's folks that live alone that might be feeling more isolated. There's some folks that are feeling way more productive because they don't get as many interruptions. So your whole team can vary. And this is stressful in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, giving everyone some grace and being Moving, aiming for the future, I think being able to still command and do the things we do, we know we're fortunate in being able to do that. 
and we're we're very grateful that we have this capability. Uh, thinking back to um, to the rover now, Alicia, is this sustainable? Can you keep commanding it um, in in this situation, or are there going to be certain mission milestones or certain things that? that you physically need to be in person to plan? I think as long as the vehicle has no issues that would require us to come in and use our test bed, which is on on lab, uh, we can continue this for quite some time. It's those kind of unforeseen anomalies that we hope we never get, even on a normal kind of commanding style, that uh, would force us to to slow down and, and assess a problem and go solve it. And that usually involves the the test rover that we have um, on lab. So you you, you is, physically have a a, a, a a twin rover that that you can tinker with to kind of try new things out if there's a problem, right? Absolutely, it's it's not an identical twin, but it's it's definitely a sibling. And, and finally, Alicia, there's uh, another Mars rover set to launch this year, which is super exciting. Uh, Perseverance. Mm-hmm. Um, are you kind of working with with that team, or or will you be the same team? And and are you kind of applying these these same remote learning or or, or remote commanding uh, lessons to this mission? Well, I am not uh, personally supporting that mission. They are separate projects, but there's a lot of folks that are split between the two of them, and uh, and we are certainly sharing some of our lessons, like the way we're trying to train our folks. We still have people in training to get forward to being able to do the commanding, and the way we're training remotely. I know is something we're sharing across the teams. They have, you know, a, a deadline that's approaching called launch that they are working towards. And the remote lessons are not just between these two, but all across lab. We've actually had quite a good amount of communication for those same types of questions that you're asking. How, how do we help our people? How do we get support? What are the issues people are having? How do we get our badges updated? You know, various things that across lab, across projects, we've been sharing a lot of information. And and finally, can you leave us with um, something to look forward to? Um, what's a what's an interesting place Curiosity is getting ready to visit, or, or something you're uh, exceptionally excited about in in the near future? Well, actually, where we are has kind of been exciting because we're up on a what we call a pediment, and so we are just cutting down off of it. So getting up onto it was a pretty steep drive. It hit like twenty, almost twenty five degrees tilt, oh, wow. which is really steep. And we've just been coming down it to get back off of it. So we're we're off of the pediment, and I think we're probably approaching another place where they'd want to collect sample, therefore drill a hole, kind of scenarios. I'm always amazed at every week we hear sort of more of what's happening in the scientific community within the within the mission. And it's it's always baffling to me how they figure out so much based on the small amount relative to what we're used to on Earth, the small amount of data that we get to collect on these rocks. Well, Alicia Alba, thank you so much for speaking with us and keeping the cats away from the rover. It makes me feel so much better. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Alicia Alba from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Still to come, the next decade of discovery is up for debate. Where are we heading? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Each year, scientists get together and plan for the next 10 years of discovery. The Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey is underway. So, what's on the horizon? 
On this week's installment of I'd Like to Know, our expert scientists weigh in on what's to come in the efforts of planetary discovery. We're joined by UCF physicists and the hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell. We start by asking Josh what the priorities of the next decade of discovery should be. That's a really tough question to answer because there are so many interesting things. Um, we're usually using previous discoveries and previous missions to sort of identify the next great things to do. Uh, NASA recently selected for development this mission called Dragonfly, which will be sending a airship to one of Saturn's moons, the moon Titan, which has got a thick atmosphere, uh, similar in many ways to the atmosphere on Earth. That's a, a very exciting uh, mission. We have uh, talked with you, Brendan, previously about going back to the very outer planets, Uranus and Neptune. These are some very interesting worlds. They've got lots of moons. They each have ring systems that are very different from Saturn's rings. I'm a big planetary rings fan. And Neptune's got a moon that's basically a Pluto-like object. So I would really love to see us go back out into the outer reaches of the solar system for some in-depth studies of those worlds. And I think there's a lot of momentum right now for um, outer planet missions. There's a lot of different studies that are being done um, so that those missions can be included in the decadal. One of the interesting things is that as they're putting together these decadal surveys, they do mission concept studies and, and actually do some pretty full-fledged um, analyses before they go into the study. But um, that way we can better prioritize and know how realistic some of the costs are and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Jim, what about you? What What's on, on, on your list from a, a cosmologist's perspective? Uh, well, one thing that I would love to see, this is this is just kind of a, a personal desire, is uh, a reinvestment in the LISA project. So LISA is a uh, laser interferometer uh, space antenna. So it's kind of a uh, a gravitational wave observatory. We, we've all heard lots about LIGO and the great successes that LIGO has had over the past couple of years in detecting gravitational waves. Uh, LISA is a kind of a space-based version of that. It's led by the European Space Agency, but uh, NASA was a partner in that until 2011 when we decided that we couldn't uh, continue funding that. Um, but but, so, but so that would be included in like the astro decadal, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah, it's, it's important to indicate, you know, NASA has a lot of parts to it, right? And so there's uh, planetary science and there's astronomy and astrophysics and there's earth science uh, and they all kind of work semi-independently. So I'm 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 thinking bigger. I'm I'm thinking about the ast uh, astronomy and astrophysics decadal survey, which is scheduled to go on this year, 2020. Uh, unfortunately, it's being delayed because of uh, COVID-19 and uh, the associated things. The meetings can't happen and so forth. But uh, anyway, I'm just uh, rambling about things that I or <laughs> a thing that I think we would should get back into. Yeah, I think it's interesting in the decadal this year, in the planetary decadal, they actually changed the title of it. So it actually includes astrobiology in uh, the title of the planetary decadal. And also they are specifically calling out um, planetary defense within the decadal as something that they want to focus on and prioritize. So it's interesting the way sort of the, the directives um, have been going towards how we want to focus some of those priorities mm -hmm. um, at a national level. And, and we talked and the, a little bit about the planetary sciences of it, but what what about astro 
biology and and planetary defense. What are those things, and and, and why are they taking a, a closer look at it? Um, so astrobiology is the field uh, of study that's been around for a, a while now, and it's and there's been parts of it that have been included uh, before, but they um, weren't. Uh, I guess it just wasn't in the title. But um, so astrobiology is how we study life, uh, sort of the origins of life, life in the universe. Um, I think a lot of the, I'm, I'm guessing a little bit here because I haven't seen some of the white papers, but I think a lot of the focus for astrobiology in the coming decade will be in things like Europa, um, where we're trying to do maybe life detection in the outer planetary moons, um, Europa and Celadus, places like that. Um, for a long time, it's been a focus on astrobiology um, here on Earth and then on Mars. Um, but I think this next decade, they might broaden it a little bit. Well, one of the uh, things that, uh, just following on what Addie was saying about how now the planetary decadal uh, survey, and these uh, are, are commissioned by NASA uh, for, as Jim was saying, all the different pieces of, of NASA. And in the last couple of decades, we've had this new area of discovering and studying exoplanets come along. And planetary scientists are interested in those because they're planets, but they're observed in the way that we observe stars. And so they're sort of fall into the astrophysics realm as well. And so I think that uh, most of this sort of exoplanet uh, uh, stuff for the decadal survey is following in the astrophysics division. And there's one uh, suggestion for a, a mission that uh, was developed by Webster Cash, University of Colorado to, for a space-based starshade flying in formation in front of a space telescope that would allow direct imaging of many of the exoplanets that have been seen by less uh, direct techniques so far. That would be a, a big, but a very, very cool uh, mission to see go forward. And how does this process work? You know, maybe we should have started with this question, uh, <laughs> but how do these decisions get made? So the decadal surveys are actually run um, not within NASA, but by a group called the Space Studies Board. Um, that's a, a national agency that's sort of independent of things like NSF and NASA that are the funding agencies. And so they put together um, independent panels um, and the folks who are on these, and there's so planetary scientists will be on the planetary decadal panel, um, but there will be some, some folks from different disciplines as well. And then um, if you are like working on one of the mission concepts that's being proposed for the decadal, you can't be leading a panel, for instance. So you, there's you know, not as much conflict of interest there. Um, but basically there's the, the community writes what are called white papers. So short papers outlining what they think priorities are. And usually as a community, we organize around some lead authors and then our co authors on a few different white papers um, to really work as a community to decide what we think the priorities should be. Um, and then, as I said, there are some like missions that get considered um, and they do full cost accounting estimates and things like that to see how much they think an actual mission to Uranus, for instance, or a mission to uh, Venus would cost um, and how you might be able to do some of those missions and how feasible they are in the next decade with the technologies we have and with the funding budgets models we have right now. And I'm told you've participated uh, in the past, huh, Addie? I have. So when I was a grad student, actually, was when we did the last decadal survey. And I was um, on one of the subpanels just as like a what's called an executive secretary. So um, a glorified note taker. Um, but uh, it was really fascinating to get to see the process at a sort of young stage in my career to get to see that process and how it, it developed. Great. Well, exciting to see what the future holds for uh, Discovery. We've been speaking with physicists at the University of Central Florida 
and they also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. We've got Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove. Thank you all for being here. Thanks. Thanks. And you can get their podcast Walk About the Galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Show your support for this show and the local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Wow.